Most holy God, we thank you today for all that you've done for us in Christ. We've come today to worship you, declare that you are worthy of all of our praise. We ask today that you will help us to worship you with all of our hearts, to listen to you, to receive all that you want to give us and to do in us. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. I invite you to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today before you're seated. great to see you as we gather for worship today and there are a few things i want to highlight just in the life of the church and remind you uh, that we have a membership class tomorrow night at 6 30 and we'll be meeting in room 105 which is just down the hall from the offices across from the church library and we uh love to have you come to that even if you're a member and you want to uh just to refresh your time of uh, what the church is about we invite you to come and if you haven't yet indicated to me that you're interested in coming, uh, please do so today or early tomorrow so we have materials for you. Wednesday evening, uh, our children's ministries will not be meeting because of the break at the college. Next Sunday morning, uh, we continue in the season of Lent and we'll be gathering for worship at 8, 20, 9, 40, and 11. There are a number of prayer concerns, as always, in the bulletin. And uh, we want to especially pray for uh, the group from here that's out in South Dakota. They had a little bit of a treacherous trip through the uh, snowstorm, but uh, there. And I want to pray for them this week that they have a really productive time in their own hearts as well as the people that they minister to there on the reservation. And then also want to mention that Dick Farwell, who has been a longtime member of our church, he died yesterday morning. And uh, his service will be next Sunday at 2 o'clock at the Friendship United Methodist Church. So I just want to make you aware of that. I'm sure the family would appreciate our prayers. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 1 through 23. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. 
So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. This is the word of the Lord. At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our offerings. And children ages 2 to 5 are dismissed for Children's Church. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you
you move into time of prayer as we in our practice, if you'd like to use the altar as your place of prayer, I invite you to join me. Otherwise, please be seated. Heavenly Father, on this day of worship, we do declare that worthy is the Lamb. The Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world and who came into this world for this very purpose. Father, our prayer is that you would so infuse us with the power and the grace of the Lamb who was slain. That we would live in obedience to you. We would know the joy of your Spirit in us. That we would shine your light in a world of great darkness. Father, we come today asking for your grace to be evident in the needs and the burdens of our lives. We know that it is in difficult times that we see you at work, perhaps most effectively. We see you most clearly as you minister to us in our point of need. So we pray today for every person who is struggling with illness and grief and loss and pain and all the things that come to us. In this human life. We pray, Father, for this world that is in such turmoil and chaos. And we think especially of Syria. And we ask that you would bring peace to a land torn apart by violence. And we pray, Father, for other places of the world where there are threats and violence and war. And people living in such great need. We ask that you will bring your spirit and your peace to bear on each of these places. We pray for your people. Many of our brothers and sisters who, whose lives and whose ability to worship is threatened every day. We pray for your protection over them. And we pray for your power to be seen in them. Father, we pray that you will bless us as we begin this Lenten pilgrimage. We pray that you will help us to see the power of the cross and what the coming of Christ means for our lives and for this world. We pray, Father, that you will help us as we embrace the cross to be people who do indeed shine your light in this world. Whether it's in our homes or where we work, places where we shop, the trips that we take. Let your spirit be seen in us. 
We pray this for the group in South Dakota and ask for your grace to be poured out upon them even today as they minister in churches. And as they work this week, we pray that you will do miraculous things in them and through them, through the grace of Christ. Father, we pray all of this in his name. In the name of the one who came to this world and went to the cross and died for our sins and the sins of the whole world, we ask it for his sake. Amen. See you.
Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Give us hearts that are ready and open to receive your love. And we ask this through Christ. Amen. Please be seated. History is filled with a litany of of people who have, for money or power or ideology, betrayed their country, their comrades, even their own families. If you look at, uh, if if you do a search on the internet, you will find all kinds of lists of traitors. They go from... Uh, lists of uh, people, who, who, uh, professional athletes that have betrayed their cities where they played, to uh, people, a list of uh, people who have been traitors in movies. If you do a search on a list of historic traitors, especially when you come someone who makes a list in this country, you, you find names like uh, Guy Fawkes, who in the 17th century attempted to blow up virtually all of the British aristocracy. You'll find names like Richard Hansen and Aldrich Ames, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, Americans who sold secrets to the Soviet Union. Of course, you go back in history a little more and, and you find uh, the name of Brutus, who uh, betrayed his uncle, Julius Caesar. And of course, in this country... When you, when you say the name traitor, one, probably the first name that pops into our minds is Benedict Arnold, who, uh, an American general who decided to switch sides during the Revolutionary War. But without a doubt, the most famous traitor in all the world, and the person who comes up first on every one of the lists that I found, was Judas. Judas keeps coming to the top of the list as the number one traitor in all of history. We associate the name Judas with betrayal and deceit. I'm guessing that's why you don't find many parents who name their children Judas. You don't see it very often. You know, because we, it's so connected to what Judas did. And... We know a lot about Judas. We, we have emotions that come to us when we think about Judas. But, but I also have come to believe that there's a lot more going on with Judas than we often talk about in this whole story. Luke records uh, his account of Judas betraying Jesus, the beginning of that in the passage we read this morning from Luke 22. But in order to get the context of Luke 22, of course, you need the whole book, but you at least have to go back to chapter 19. Because in chapter 19, Luke tells the story of the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Up to this point, Jesus has rarely appeared in Jerusalem. And he says it's because his time hasn't come yet. Jerusalem's this hotbed of political and religious activity, and he's not yet ready to get totally embroiled into that. But when it comes to Palm Sunday and this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the time has come. 
And after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus has a little discussion with the Pharisees, the religious leaders, about his place and that the people should not have been honoring him the way they did. He goes into the temple and he, and he clears it out. And of course, that doesn't set well with them. He tells parables that condemn them. He has discussions with them. They ask him questions and he embarrasses them. And so it's not really a surprise that they come to the conclusion that now is the time to get rid of Jesus. And Jesus knows that. And the disciples know that. Certainly, Judas knows that. What interests me about this is that Luke is very clear in telling us that that the, the religious leaders do not come to Judas as if Judas puts off some kind of traitor vibe and they look at the group and say, hey, maybe he'll do it. Judas goes to them. And he says, I want to betray Jesus. And you have to wonder why. why. Why does Judas go to them? Why does he do that? Well, there are a lot of theories. One theory is it's based on ideology. Now, the disciples, even after the resurrection of Jesus, are still thinking in their minds that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that Christ is bringing in, is going to be an earthly kingdom. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, they said, Lord, is this the time when you're going to usher in your kingdom on earth? And if they think that after the resurrection still, a few days after the resurrection, then surely they think that before the crucifixion. And in their minds, it's all about Jesus overthrowing the Roman government. But Judas may be thinking, he's not doing this fast enough. He's not going about it the right way. So I'm going to push him a little bit. Because if he gets arrested, if they come after him, he'll stand up and fight. It might be that Judas is disillusioned with Jesus. Because he has come to realize that what he wants Jesus to do to the Romans, what he wants Jesus to do to, to Israel and, and specifically there in Jerusalem, Jesus isn't doing. And he's come to the realization that Jesus isn't going to do it. And so he's frustrated. He's disillusioned. He's angry with Jesus. And this is sort of an act of revenge. There's a good chance that it might well be just as simple as money. In, in John's gospel, he tells a story that uh, not too long before Jesus uh, is arrested, maybe during that week, it might be a little before that, but Jesus is with some folks in a home and a woman takes an expensive jar of perfume, costs about a year's wages. She breaks it, pours it over Jesus, and Judas is irritated. And he says, you know, this is such a waste. We could have taken that perfume and sold it and given the money to the poor. And John's editorial comment is, Judas really didn't care about the poor. He just wanted that money in the treasury because he was the treasurer and he had a habit of dipping into the till. And he does get paid 30 pieces of silver, a fair amount of money, to do this. But in reality, we don't know exactly what's motivating Judas. And in some ways, it doesn't really matter. Because whatever is motivating Judas is that something of this earth is more important than Jesus. Something about, about what he is engaging in in this life is more important than Jesus is. His perspective is better than Jesus' perspective. His way of accomplishing what needs to be accomplished is better than the way that Jesus is doing it. And for some reason, 
Judah says, that's enough. And he betrays his friend. And Luke's really clear about that in verse 3. He says that Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, betrays Jesus. He not only sticks in the knife, he turns it. But that's what betrayal is. You know, you, an enemy can't betray us because you expect an enemy to treat you poorly, but a friend. And what interests me about this, this encounter is that when you get to the, after Jesus has, has shared the, this meal with them, and you get to the end of that, and he says, one of you is going to betray me. And all the disciples look at each other and say, how could any one of us betray him? In verse 23 in the, in the NIV, it says, they began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. The New Living Translation says the disciples began to ask each other which of them would ever do such a thing. And the gospel writers seem to imply that any one of them could have betrayed Jesus. It's, Judas doesn't betray Jesus because he's subhuman or because he is so, so evil. Or because he's really just a spy in Jesus' camp all along. Judas is just like all the other disciples. But something gets into his heart. Something makes him decide that the stuff of this earth is more important than Jesus. And he turns on him. But every one of the disciples were susceptible to doing that very same thing. And here's the... Here's the bold truth. The bold truth of this whole thing is that you and I are susceptible to. Now, that's hard for us to acknowledge. And granted, there are different, different ways of turning on Jesus. There are, there are different kinds of sins that we, that we encounter and that, that human beings do. Richard John Newhouse's book, Death on a Friday Afternoon, talks about the, the, the moral monsters of history. You know, Hitler, Mao, Stalin, mass murderers. And he says, you know, justice, justice demands a, a gradation of guilt. There is a distinction. You know, there, there are ways in which they are different from us and we are different from them. And we can't deny that and we don't want to deny that. But the reality, he says, is that the complexity... And the complicity of their crimes some way correlates into our hearts. Because we all wrestle with sinfulness. Now our mantra is, I'm not that bad. You know, I, I would never do that. I would never turn on Jesus. And, and we are so good at denying not just our sin, but our susceptibility to sin. And we tend to, the tack we use is we minimize our sin. But Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? At some point, you and I have to come to the realization that we have deceitful hearts. As much as we want to downplay that, as much as we want to ignore that... You and I have deceitful hearts and we wrestle with sin and we wrestle even with, you know, evil. And there's stuff in us that we want to push aside. 
Newhouse goes on to say that knowing myself and, and knowing the things that I do and the things that I don't do, I, I have to admit that when I think back to the day Jesus was crucified, I was there too. And I was there wielding the whip and driving the nails and thrusting the spear and putting the silver coins in my pockets. We ask ourselves, how, how, could, how, how could we ever do that? Like the disciples, how could we ever turn on Jesus? The same way we turn on each other. The same way we betray each other and sin against each other. You know, we, we, have, um, we have created a culture of mistrust. You know, we, we are so good at betraying each other that we have to continually protect ourselves from the ways that we treat each other. I mean, this was driven home to me so clearly years back when we were building our house. You know, we had never done a house before. We, we'd always lived in parsonages. Both our parents were in the ministry. They lived in parsonages. So this is a first-time experience for us. And we found a, a banker that, we, that we, we met. We liked one of our trips here, getting things ready before we moved. We liked her. We, we liked the, the things that she was doing for us at the bank. And we kind of built a relationship with her. And as we're going through this process, she said to us one day, Okay, who's your lawyer for do, dealing with you know, the closing and all of this? And I don't remember if I actually said this to her. I probably didn't. But I remember thinking to myself, why do I need a lawyer? Are, are you going to deceive me? Are, are you going to design a contract that is going to take advantage of me? You mean to tell me that I can't trust you to be honest? And I have to have legal counsel to look over the things that you want me to sign because you might sneak in something that I'm not aware of? I probably didn't say that to her because... That might not, that might have nixed the deal right there. But, but I remember thinking to myself, and, but you know, that's the culture in which we live in. We've created this culture of mistrust. Why? Because we betray each other so often. And we turn on each other so often. And we always are thinking about how we can categorize our sins so they don't seem so bad in the midst of that culture. You know, we say, well, I'm not... You know, I'm not trafficking humans. I'm not suborning perjury. I'm not committing murder. I, I didn't bring down a multinational company. I didn't create the, the problems that, you know, we're going through with, with all the, the stuff in the economy. I'm not taking bribes. I'm not giving bribes. I'm not doing any of that bad stuff. And that may well be true, and that's good. But that doesn't mean there's not sinfulness and evil lurking in our hearts. Because we gossip we stretch the truth to protect ourselves. We respond to people inappropriately. We speak harsh words to people. We ignore the poor and the vulnerable. We are continually looking out for ourselves rather than thinking about others. And when you read the list of sins that Paul describes in his letters, it's important to remember he's writing to the church when he writes those letters. And we love to minimize our sin and think, well, I'm not like, I'm not anything like Judas. But it's untrue. 
Because somewhere deep within us, despite what we say, based on the way we too often live, we are declaring the same thing that Judas is, that our way of seeing the world is better than God's way. That our way of bringing the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven is a better way than God's way. That our ideas about how we feel fulfilled are better than God's way about bringing fulfillment to us. And we are so often caught up in trusting the stuff of this world and giving our lives to the things of this world first instead of Christ first. I think we also wrestle in this whole thing with, you know, not just minimizing our sin, but there is a sense in which the church has created an atmosphere in which we can't talk about our sin. Even if we realize that and we acknowledge, hey, there's some bad stuff that I'm dealing with, you can't talk about it in the church. I mean, we, we the church has bought into that whole idea of plausible deniability. You know, if we don't talk about it, don't, don't tell me, then I won't know. And we're good. You know, again, it's built into our culture. What happens if you, what do the insurance companies tell you to do if you have an auto accident? First, two of the first things you do, call the police and don't admit you had anything to do with it. Right? We don't want to, don't admit you're liable. You get yourself in trouble doing that. But the reality is, we think sometimes that, you know, that we can, that we sort of outgrow sin. That if we walk with God long enough, then we don't have to worry about sin anymore. And the truth is, we ought to be growing and we ought to be getting stronger and better. But getting stronger and maturing with Christ doesn't mean that we no longer deal with sin. It just means that we recognize that much more how much we need Christ because of our sin. And the more mature we become in Christ, we don't minimize sin. We don't ignore sin. We actually see it that much more clearly. It's just that now we're saying, it's all about you, Christ. And I surrender that to you. And I acknowledge it to you. Fred Smith tells a parable about, about a, a guy who gets, who is a victim of a hit and run accident. And he's lying in the street and he's bleeding. And people are gathering around him. And they say, come on, we're going to call an ambulance to take you to the hospital. And he says, no, no, don't take me to the hospital. Why? And he said, because I'm on staff at the hospital. And, you know, they, I don't want them to see me like this. When I go to the hospital, I'm clean, I'm neat and all put together. And if they saw me like this, what would they think? Like, who cares? You're hurt. We need to, we need to get to the hospital. No, no, no. And besides, I just took a pedestrian safety course last week. And the instructor, he's going to be so irritated with me because I got hit walking along the road. And then when we get to the hospital, the, 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 counselor, the admissions counselor, she's going to want to know all this information. And I don't have any information. I didn't get the model or make of the car. I didn't get the license number. I don't know what, I can't even hardly remember what happened. And I don't have my insurance card with me either. It's it just, no, just leave me here. Help me get to the curb and then I'll take it from here. And the people help him to the curb. And Fred Smith says, how ridiculous. How crazy to think that somebody would react that way. And he says, and yet it happens in the church all the time. He said, The other day I asked a group of Christians if on a Saturday night they got hit and run over by some unacceptable sin, what would they do? And to a person they said, well, I wouldn't go to church the next day. 
And we have built in somehow this kind of mindset that we don't talk about sin. We ignore it and maybe it'll go away. The reality is we really need more of a 12-step kind of mindset. We all ought to walk in every Sunday and stand up and say, Hi, I'm Wes and I'm a sinner. And not just I used to sin, but I still wrestle with sin. And I still wrestle with, with my own humanness getting in the way of my relationship with Christ. And every one of us could stand up and say it. And here's the thing, until we acknowledge the evil within us, we can never experience the power of the cross. Until we acknowledge that we are sinners, we'll never experience the power of the cross. I've been intrigued for a long time about what John writes in the first letter First, his first epistle in chapter 1, he says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he goes back again and says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Jesus came to the world to die on the cross for our sins. Every one of us. And if we say, I don't have any sins, we're basically saying to God, you are a liar. And the cross is a sham. I don't need the cross. I'm fine. I don't have any sins. I don't deal with that. The cross means nothing to me. It's only when we come and acknowledge we need Christ. Because of our sinfulness and because the struggling in our souls, only when we do that does the cross have meaning for us. And as long as we remain in denial, as long as we live and minimize our sin, the cross will be minimized in our lives. The most mature Christians are the people who say, I I am a sinner who can do nothing with my life without Christ. And then Christ begins to fill us and give us strength and power. And we begin to overcome sin. And we begin to have strength and power to deal with sin. But it's not because we are so strong. It's because we have opened ourselves up and acknowledged our need. And Christ has filled us. And that is a need in every one of our lives. Not just once at some point in time. But every day, every moment. We need the cross. And what's so ironic is that what our sin makes necessary is the very thing that saves us. You see, this this story about Judas is, this is not a story that, that declares, be as much like Christ as you can. This is a story that declares, you do realize how much like Judas you are, right? Now, this is not a story that's saying when people turn on you, forgive them. We need to do that. But that's not what this story is about. This story is about if you can't see how much you're like Judas, you'll never experience forgiveness. And I think that causes us often to feel a sense of despair and hopelessness about our sin. 
But that's what brings us back to the cross. Because the despair and the hopelessness of our sin is met by the love and the forgiveness of the cross. Matthew 27, he tells us that when Judas discovers and realizes what he has done, he ends up taking his own life. The guilt, the shame is just so overwhelming he can't handle it. But the greater tragedy is that if Judas had only been able to hear Jesus declare from the cross, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. And Jesus doesn't just say that to the religious leaders and to the, to the Romans. He says it to Judas. And he's saying it to you and me. Father, forgive them. And he does. He's simply calling us to open our lives, to acknowledge our sin, and to let him forgive us. Day by day, moment by moment. In John's telling of this event of the Last Supper, he tells us that when the disciples enter and get situated, Jesus takes a basin of water and a towel, and he begins going around the room one by one, washing their feet. When he comes to Peter, Peter says, no, no, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part in me. And there is something in that that speaks to this. Because until we acknowledge the dirt in our hearts, we'll never know the cleansing of Christ. And that brings us to this table. This table is about about Christ's broken body and And shed blood poured out for our sins. This is a table that calls us to acknowledge our sin and to receive forgiveness and healing and grace. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when Jesus breaks the bread and offers the cup to the disciples... Judas is right there. If only he could have heard what Jesus was saying and seen what Jesus was offering him. It is exactly what he is saying to us and offering us. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will give us grace to acknowledge the truth about ourselves and to embrace the truth of the cross. We ask this through Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to join me in reading together, praying together a prayer of confession. It'll be printed on the screen. No, we don't have it on the screen. All right. Let me pray this for us. Powerful and forgiving Lord, by enduring the pain of the cross, you have shown us the price love must pay for taking sin seriously. The nails, the crown, the humiliation, the mockery, the shame. 
All that you went through delivered us from the stronghold of sin and enabled us to live in the freedom that only you can give. This is the reality of the cross. Too often it's not the reality of our lives. Father, in our contentment, we forsake the transforming work of the cross in our lives. In our disobedience, we nullify the redeeming and forgiving power of the cross. And so we ask you to forgive us. Forgive us for the ways in which we do not take our sin as seriously as you do. Help us to reflect on the mercies of your cross. And as we do, give us strength and grace to take up our own and to follow you. Father, we pray that as we reflect upon our sins and as we reflect upon your grace, we pray you will pour out your blessing on the bread and the cup. We pray, Father, that your grace and mercy will be so evident here that as we receive them, we will be stirred anew of your forgiveness and your grace for our sin. We pray this through Jesus Christ. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He gave thanks to the Father in heaven and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And on the same night he took the cup. And again he gave thanks to the Father in heaven and gave it to his disciples saying, drink from this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to distribute the elements to you in your seats this morning. As the bread is passed on the road, tear off a piece and hand the the loaf to the person next to you. And when everyone is received, then we will eat together. And then we'll do the same with the cup. I always like to mention that we practice open communion at the Western Church. This might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to God, acknowledging your need for Him, and a desire to receive His forgiveness and grace in your life, then you are wholeheartedly invited to receive these gifts from His gracious hand.
We're going to receive communion this morning in silence to give us an opportunity to meditate upon our lives and to meditate upon the grace of God. In gratitude and thanksgiving for the grace of God in Christ, let us receive his broken body.
and in thanksgiving for his grace to us, let's receive his shed blood. Please stand and join us as we sing our final song, You Alone Can Rescue.
receive the benediction. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen. Amen.